This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We are a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. And it was night. Those are the words that John uses to describe the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And it was night. Maybe John was describing a, a physical night. Nighttime. It gets dark out. Sun goes down. Moon is up. Stars twinkle. Maybe he's just talking about a physical night. I think it's, I think it's more than that. Maybe he's talking about a mental night. You can have a mental night, right? You guys, you can't find your thoughts and you stumble over your words. Any of you guys know what it's like to have a mental night? Yeah, some of you, some of you. Ethan, I know, you text me every single time, buddy. I love that. I love that about you. It's great. You can have a mental night. It's just kind of hard to get your thoughts out. I, I don't think that's what John's talking about. You can have an emotional night. We know what dark emotions are. We can be sad. We can be grieved. But I think John is talking about more than that in this passage this morning. You can have a relational night. Maybe some of you are off the heels of holiday gatherings and Christmas parties and there was strife and there was hardship and there was difficulty and it's just, it's night and it's not fun and it's not sunshine and rainbows and kittens and unicorns. But I don't think that's what John's talking about in this passage this morning. He's talking about a spiritual night. The kind of night that doesn't come from the outside, but one that you sense and feel on the inside. A spiritual night. It's almost as if when John says this in John chapter 13, moving into what we call uh, Jesus' farewell discourse, it's like it's a stage cue in a script so the production team knows what needs to happen on the stage and it was night. And so the lights have to dim and there's an eeriness that comes across people's faces. The music shifts. You know how important music is. For setting the scene. Because you can have, there's lots of different kinds of nighttime music, isn't there? Jason, can I have a little bit, please? I mean, the, the boys, they, they, they went, uh, the teens had rocked the house last night. So just Elise and I were home and we were making dinner and the music was playing. So we were, we were dancing in the kitchen. You all know how to dance. You dance in the kitchen, right? Music, nighttime. Little old Joe Cocker. You are so beautiful. It's my baby girl. To me. You are so beautiful. That's good stuff, man. Really, you know, Brian Adams. 
Yeah. Robin Hood, remember that one? The good one? No. So you can have that kind of nighttime music. Or you can just have sad music, right? It's just, we're just sad. But that's not what John's talking about in this passage. And it was night. It's really an idea that John started sharing towards the beginning of his gospel. This idea that light had come into the world, that light was Jesus. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus says these words, This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. That's, that's a spiritual night, isn't it? Jesus says something similar in chapter 11. This is right before the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, who's the day? Jesus is the day. He doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. Jesus said, it's easy to walk with me because I'm the light of the world. You're not going to stumble. You're not going to fall because you're with me and I'm with you. That physical presence that he shared with his disciples. It's easy to walk when the light's with you. But now we come to a place in John's gospel where Jesus has a very honest moment with his disciples. And he says, I'm concerned because I'm And when the light leaves, it's going to be hard for you not to fall away. It's going to be easy for you to stumble. And so what Jesus does, what John points us to, because we all enter into a night. Some of us know that night very well. Some of us have been walking in that night. Some of us need to come to the realization that it's getting darker. Jesus says, I, I need to give you four relationships to be mindful of, to be aware of, so that when you walk in the night, when it's so hard to see, so hard to not lose your way, you won't fall away. You won't stumble. Last week, we unpacked the first one of those. Uh, we talked about an abiding relationship with Jesus. And if you weren't able to be with us last week, you can go online. You can get caught up on that. I really encourage you to do that. It really starts by having an abiding relationship with Jesus. Everything we talk about today is the overflow of walking with Jesus. That he is the vine, we're the branches. He says, you can't do anything. You're completely dependent upon me in the dialogue that we experience together. Do you have an abiding relationship with Jesus? Another relationship, and we'll talk about this next week, 
Jesus says you need to be mindful of the hostile relationship you will have with my enemies. Follow me in the night. You need to understand that there are forces of evil out to get you. They're going to kick you out of the synagogue. They're going to kick you out of your communities. They're going to kill you and they're going to call it the act of God. They're going to take credit for it and feel proud of themselves. We'll talk about that next week. The week after that, we're going to talk about the fourth relationship, the witnessing relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. That because it is night and we are to shine bright, he says, you're not going to stand by yourself. In fact, I'm going to give you another witness, a divine helper so that you shine bright, the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But this week, let's jump into our passage this morning. Okay, we're in John chapter 15. I have a copy of John's gospel with me. Uh, If you would like, there's copies uh, of the Bible in the seats in front of you. You can take those home. If you don't have a Bible and you like one located in the seats in front of you, take that home. Uh, You can have that. Print's kind of small, so if you don't like those ones, we have some fancy lever-bound ones in the Lost and Found. If you would like those ones, you might find one with your name on it. Who knows what you find there. Um, So by all means, have access to those too. Uh, But John chapter 15, Curtis is going to have the verses up on the screen for us to follow along. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do what I commanded you, no longer do I call you servants. The servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you, appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that you love one another. This morning, what does it mean to have a loving relationship with one another? First, let me put this passage just in a little bit of context for you. Okay, so this is the very center of what theologians call Jesus's farewell discourse. It's four chapters long. John's only 21 chapters. He dedicates so much real estate to this last message of Jesus. And this is the very center of it. It's the tip of the spear, if you will. The command, love one another. But even look at the way it's put together. It has bookends, a beginning and an end that match each other. Look at verse 12 and verse 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. And then look at verse 17. These things I command you so that you love one another. Everything else that's sandwiched in between, bookended with the very same command. Love one another. Command, not an option. He says, if you're going to make it through the night, if you're going to survive the dark night of your soul, if you're going to persevere through the hostility that my followers are bound to experience, you have to love one another. 
Which is really interesting because the passage that he talked about uh, that we looked at last week where he talks about abiding, he didn't command us. He says, I command you, abide. He simply says, these things I've shared with you. You know, we kind of talk. Hey, let's talk about some stuff. But loving one another, he says, here are some very clear, precise orders and expectations. He says, follower, this is not an option for you. You have to love one another. So let's open up what this word love means this morning. Maybe you're a little bit like me and you've got echoes of Hollywood, bad country music, Hallmark cards that define your understanding of love or try to inform it and shape it. But what Jesus goes on to do in these next few verses is help us understand what does it mean to love? He says, this is how I've loved you. This is how I love you. This is divine love. This is agape. It's devotion. This is my commitment to you. This is what it looks like. It comes in three ways. In the first verse, he says this is verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friend. He says, my love is sacrificial. It's a sacrificial love. To sacrifice. To give of yourself. It is the heartbeat of God's love with humanity. He sacrifices gives of himself. A couple summers ago, uh, we opened up and walked through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is the love chapter. I was so concerned with our understanding because at that time, people were making posters about love and let love remain and everyone love and love this and love that. And I'd watch the news and throw up in my mouth. Um, so I said, hey, well, what does the Bible say about love? How does it define love? I mean, and you'll remember, I mean, we did a whole summer, two and a half months. Love is patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. I hate that one. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. This is the center of what Jesus says his love is. It's a sacrificial love. Generous giving. You see this. And true, stark contrast in how Jesus walks with Judas. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to be a church person. When I say Judas, it is such a part of our culture. You know what that means, right? You know to say you're a Judas is to say you are someone who betrays. You are someone who harms. You're someone who disappoints. You're someone who leaves. And right before John gives us the stage cue, and it was night, there's this beautiful supper meal. We call it the Last Supper. I mean, they didn't call it the Last Supper. 
It's kind of, I mean, there was no decorators who came in to put up the decorations with a big banner that says, Last Supper. No, it was just, it was, here's this intimate, sacramental, ceremonial Passover celebration where they're remembering Israel's deliverance from bondage. And Jesus sets his message right on top of that. So they're sharing this, this beautiful meal together. And do you think that Jesus did not know what was going on in Judas's heart? Do you think Jesus was not spiritually attuned into the wrestling and the treachery and the temptation and the spiritual forces that at every turn were grabbing at Judas's heart? Do you think Jesus did? Wasn't Jesus at every turn calling and beckoning and giving of himself in devotion to Judas? I mean, Jesus puts Judas at the seat of honor right next to him at this supper. I mean, if you know someone's going to do something dumb, you put him right next to you. In that seat of honor, sharing a meal with him. It always grips my heart that the last thing that Judas will experience from Jesus is Jesus sharing a piece of bread with him. His last memory is the divine hand, the creative hand of God infused with so much power and might, but passion and grace that tears off a piece of bread, the piece of bread that we celebrate when we gather at the table and that hand extending it to Judas, full of love and devotion. If I were Jesus, I would have hit him in the head with it. Jerk, here. Not our Jesus. So much compassion and so much love. John writes this and records this after the fact. He's looking back at a moment in time that happened 50, 60 years before. Jesus' last meal, before his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He's looking back and remembering greater love has no one than this as one who was at the foot of the cross, who saw the beating and the scourging, the crown of thorns pressed upon. He saw the spear go in the Lord's side. Greater love has no one than this. John knew exactly what it meant when Jesus said those words. And Jesus tells us, what is love? It's sacrifice. It's sacrifice. But greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Friend. Jesus says, my love to you is the posture of friendship. Write that down. If you're someone who writes notes, I'd write that down. A posture of friendship. To continue reading the next couple verses. Verse 14. You are my friends. 
if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Posture of friendship. He calls me friend. Say that out loud. Jesus calls me friend. Say that again. Jesus calls me friend. Jesus calls me friend. Look at someone else and say, Jesus calls you friend. Jesus calls me friend. Look at someone else and say, Jesus calls you friend. <laughs> Some of you really struggled with that. That was, that was, that, it started so good. And then, you know, like you looked at someone you liked and then you looked at this and like, yeah, no way. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not happening. That's I don't, yeah, maybe Jesus. Um, <laughs> Jesus contrasts friendship with a posture of servitude. A posture of servitude. So I don't call you servants. I call you, I call you friend. So uh, l- l- let me show this to you. Let me show this. Adam, would you come up here, please? I know you have to. You have no choice in the matter. You're an elder. But you got this really cool beard. Did you see in the reading that we had today talk about oil in the beard of Aaron? That's like legit, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's not running down. Not running down. No, no, no. It's coming out of the, yeah. So the posture, a posture of servitude. Master, slave, okay? What? Nothing. If I'm the master, the posture of me is away. It's closed. He doesn't know what I'm doing, right? It's just job. He stands there. He wait. You're up too high. Get down. Get there. You're down. You're low. You're low. You're the servant. Yeah, I'm the master. I'm the master. I'm up. He's down. I'm away. He's waiting. This is the posture. It's one of denigration. It's one of delegation. But Jesus says, that's... That's not how I treat you. That's not how I see you. He says, I'm not close to you. In fact, I have come down to what? Dwell with you. For the word became flesh and dwelt with you. I'm not closed. I'm open. There's an openness to him. This is the posture of Jesus. This is what he says. Love is friendship. Thanks, buddy. You're awesome. I love you so much. My brother. You're my brother. He says, there's a recognition. I call you friends. In the hide it. He recognizes it. I call you. Hey, you're my friend. You're my friend. You're my friend. A recognition. I, I play this game with you guys every Sunday morning. You don't know that I play it, but I play it. And some of you are like, Paul, we know you play games. <laughs> the game I play on Sunday morning is, I wonder, can I live my life in such a way that no one has to guess who my wife is? Can I live my life in such a way and how I walk, talk, and act. That if you ask anyone, they'll know that's his wife right there. 
You ever seen how he looks at her? You ever seen how he talks to her? You don't even have to know Paul to know, at least that's, that's his wife. See how they stand together. See how they laugh together. See how they hold hands. You can recognize, everyone can recognize those two are married. They're best friends. Good job, Terry. All right, man. Well done. Did she make you do that? Okay. <laughs> Gentlemen, I encourage you. I challenge you. Do the same thing. Live the same way. Act in the same way that no one has to guess who your wife is. Not, not with my wife. Do it with your wife. Okay? Okay? This is my wife. Don't do Not with other guys' wives. It's wrong. Okay? That's just, no, no. Live in such a way. Recognize. Jesus says, I call you friends. Look at someone and say, Jesus calls you friend. Does that blow your mind a little bit? I mean, depending on the tradition that you come from, the theological tradition that you come from, okay, you might have a lot of ways of approaching Jesus, but I bet you it's not friendship. It's my Lord, it's my Savior, 100% true. But Jesus looks at me and he says, Paul, you're my friend. Aaron, you're my friend. Eric, you're my friend. Christy, you're my friend. Chris, you're my friend. Harper, you're my friend. Let's go, girl. <laughs> Friendship, a posture of friendship. So there's a recognition, I call you. There's an openness. There's an openness. He says, I've shared things with you. Everything the Father gave to me, to you. There, there's, there's an openness in the relationship. He's not closed off. He's revealed his book, his writing, his word, his heart. But not just an openness like, here, I'll let you read my mail. Right? He says, here's my journal. Like, so this is mine. Um, and you guys, any of you ever watch me? I don't go anywhere without my man purse and my journal. And there's some good stuff in here. There is stuff in here that I would definitely let you read. There is stuff in here I would not let you read at all. I'm a little ashamed to say that this one started... Uh, I started this one on June 3rd. So it's taken me a little bit longer to get this one filled up. I'm pretty close. I only got a couple pages left. But uh, I started on June 3rd, just some reflections. I always get excited when I start a new journal. I love my Moleskines, man. I'm like a nerd this way. I love starting a fresh journal. Like, oh, like my old friend. Like, dude, let's do this. Let's do this. It's together. It's awesome. Um, but you see, the next day, they rushed me to the hospital for surgery. June 5th, 2023. I woke up this morning in Grandview Hospital, minus 68 inches of small intestines. They call it an incarcerated hernia. Writing changed a lot after that. But Jesus, Paul, you are such a friend to me. Here, you can read it all. I haven't kept anything back. In fact, 
I've passed on to you the stuff that the father shared with me. Like I had an awesome relationship with my dad. The stuff that a father and a son share together. And Jesus, you're such a friend to me. I've told you things that the dad told, my dad told me. Like, here's our texts. Here's the things that dad and I text. Here's things that dad and I have talked about. And I've, I've passed those on to you too. You're my friend. You're my friend. A recognition, an openness. There's a, a couple people in the Old Testament that are described as God's friends. One of them is Moses. Okay, like Moses, right? Like Moses. For he was called God's friend, for God spoke to him as one face to face. And now Jesus said that about me? Like when I'm in prayer and I'm, I'm, I'm failing at life, I can't get a thought together. I can't do it. My friend is with me as one face to face. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. The other one in the Old Testament is described as God's friend is Abraham. Like, holy cow, we got Moses, we got Abraham. Abraham, the pagan, the polytheist, who God, I chose him and appointed and sent him that he would be the father of many nations. And that's exactly that's exactly what Jesus says next about us. Look at this. Going on in the passage. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. You didn't choose me. He says, I've chosen you. There is a promotion that's contained within Jesus' love for me. So it's sacrificial. There's a posture of friendship, but there's also this promotion, okay? He's the vine, I'm the branches. I would bear much fruit. He says, I've chosen you. I've appointed you. That word appointed could also mean like deposited. I've deposited something into your checking account so that your life will have meaning and purpose and fruitfulness that you might do the things that the Father and his good sovereignty has appointed for you to accomplish. It goes back to what we talked about last week. The abiding. I abide with him, he abides with me. And the result is He loves me in such a way and postures himself in such a way that my life has meaning. Think about that. Jesus gives of himself so that my life matters. That my life would bear fruit. That my marriage would be honoring. That my parenting would be effective. That my ministry would last. He promotes me. You got to sit with that one for a little bit. You got to walk with that one for a little bit. You got to sip some tea on that one for a little bit.
Jesus wants my life to thrive. And that doesn't mean you get a boat, okay? Or a jet, or a mansion. It might mean that in the world's standards, life is terrible. But in God's economy, he says that it lasts. It lasts. It lingers. And then I have divine access so that whatever I'm going through, Jesus, you can now call my dad. You can get a hold of my dad. We'll get you what you need. So Paul, wherever you're serving, however you're serving, whatever you are doing that you feel the Holy Spirit has moved you to do, bringing God's kingdom on earth, you just ask dad, we will hook you up, man. We will hook you up. I am a beggar whose best friend is a prince who said I can call his dad whenever I want. I am but a beggar who happens to be best friends with a prince who said I can call his dad whenever I want. Do you see the focus of this passage? There's this word that comes again and again and again and again and again. I counted it. It's the word you. 17 times. I'm the nerd. I did it. 17 times the word you comes up. The focus. Jesus' focus in this passage isn't on himself. What's the focus? Jesus' focus is who? On you. On me. I love you. Sacrificing for you. That you would abide. That you would remain. You. Call my father. And that matters so much because this passage, as much as we love it and we like it, I like talking about that Jesus loves me, right? But that's not really the thrust of the passage, is it? This is my commandment, that you love who? One another. As I have loved you. You love now as I have loved you. That means to maneuver the night with grace and effectiveness and perseverance, we must now do those things that Jesus shares with us. That means in how Jesus has sacrificed for me, I now sacrifice for the other. That I am to manifest a sacrificial devotion not for the John, but for the Judas. Because loving the nice ones and the ones that we like to hang out with, that's easy, isn't it? That's, that's a piece of cake. I like you, you like me. I, you like the same music that I like. We like to eat the same kind of things. We like to read the same passages. We like to go to the same stores. Like, we're best friends. It's easy to love your best friend. But the challenge isn't loving them. The call is to love Judas. That's who you're called to love. The one who betrays. The one who hurts. The one who cuts. That's the one you hold on to. That's the one that you cling to. Our love is to be sacrificial. He goes, 
thing. What? If it's supposed to be sacrificial, that there's also supposed to be this posture of friendship. This abiding posture of friendship. Not of servitude. I do this. Man, I do this. I treat people like they're a tool to get my job work, my work done. And so there are times in my life where I was, I would, Paul, yeah, stop manipulating people. Like, I know, I'm sorry. But they're dumb. Paul, you can't talk to people like that. I know, I'm sorry. And I've had many a loving person come alongside of me and mentors in my life who have to help me see that you're there to help them. That's a sign of a good servant leader, isn't it? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, you know why the church has those people? To prepare the saints for ministry. Not to position them for their ministry. To help you thrive in your ministry. You need to approach people as their friend. That's how you love them. Not like they're there to be your servant or slave. To help you accomplish your agenda. That's loving them. The Apostle Paul said that in the letter to the Thessalonians. We didn't just share the gospel with you, but we shared our lives as well. Practicing an openness, a vulnerability and honesty with others. Sharing your needs and your griefs and your pains. And also living in such a way that you promote other people's ministry, helping them thrive. How can I help you succeed this week? Could you, holy cow, can you imagine if we showed up on Sunday morning? How can I help you this week? What do you need this week? What are you going through? How can I pray for you? How can I be there for you? What do you need? How can I be there for you? Could you imagine if all of a sudden we all started doing that? The revolution that would happen inside of these walls? That's the, that's the kind of devotion that moves a house in a rock to blows it up into a city upon a hill. Man, they love each other. Man, they love each other. They're there for each other. Sacrifice, friendship, promotion. For you, I'm here for you. If I posture myself in a way to promote the well-being of others. I won't fall if I'm focusing on helping you from falling. I started to think through, as we wind down our time, I started to think through what are some of the implications or ways that we can apply this this morning and maybe with you. Can you let this shape how you see love biblically? Rather than turning up the country song or letting Hollywood inform, what if you started to let this inform how you love others? And you begin to practice this type of love. This type of love. Because you have to practice it. You have to practice it. You have to let it shape you and form you. Because if you do this, if you let Jesus love you, you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to compare or compete with anybody else. You don't. If I, I am the best friend of the prince, I don't have to freak out if you treat me like trash. I don't have to compare. I don't have to compete. 
I don't have to advance my agenda. Why? Because Jesus is advancing my agenda. Jesus is moving my ministry. Jesus is backing me. Jesus is supporting me. Jesus is cheering for me. Jesus is loving me. I don't have to compete. I don't have to compare. That love, letting the vine pour grace into you, enables you to go above and beyond anything that you could do in your own strength. I practice this. I try to practice this um, easy in my home, but that's where you practice, okay? So I park my car in the driveway. I open up the garage at the end of the day. It doesn't matter the kind of day that it was. I walk past my wife's car. There's the door from the garage into the kitchen. And as I get close to that door, I prepare myself. I practice something. When I walk in that door, I want them to see in me excited to see them. Does that make sense? When they see me, I want them to find someone excited to see them. Learned that from Kurt Thompson, amazing psychiatrist, loves Jesus. And he would say that everybody is looking for someone looking for them. Everyone is looking for someone who is looking for them. So it doesn't matter what my day has been or really what's going on in my headspace or what's carrying me. When she, when she sees me as I walk in the door, I want her to see in me a face of delight and joy and excitement. I want her to feel, wow, he's excited to see me. And when my sons bump into me, it doesn't matter my day. It doesn't matter how long it's been, when it started, how I feel, how I feel. It doesn't matter. I want, when he sees me, boy, dad is excited to see me. Wow, Aiden, Aiden, dad excited to see me. Jackson, wow, dad is excited to see me. That they know dad's in their corner. What if we did that on Sunday morning? What if we cared more about being good Christians on Sunday morning instead of being good Americans? What if instead of showing up to see what we could get and then critiquing the menu after we left, what if we showed up wondering what we could give? Father, you know, as I pull in the parking, I know there's going to be someone who needs a friend, who needs someone to sit next to who needs someone to be there, someone to listen, someone to wrap their arms around. Father, help me be that person for someone else. I don't think you understand how much that will preserve and infuse your own faith with God's grace if you took that posture. In a few Sundays, we're going uh, to do a, a study, uh, Jesus and mental health. Um, uh-huh. Believe it or not, the Bible has a lot to say about it. And you'd be amazed at how much even secular clinicians will say the same thing that the Bible says if they're being honest. You want to know what the number one thing is? One of the best things that you can do for anxiety, if you suffer from anxiety? Ask even a secular psychiatrist. Practice a posture of gratitude. Learn to be thankful. Learn to be thankful. Stop seeing the problem. 
Start giving thanks for the solutions. If you battle from depression, if you suffer from depression, most people don't. A lot of people think they do. I think he thinks some of us make it up. You know what they say that one of the best things that you can do if you battle with depression is serve others. Get the attention off yourself and just go serve somebody. Go serve somebody. Look, now you don't even come listen to the sermon in a few weeks. I gave you the whole sermon. It's all done. Now you can go be happy and serve others. Stop being so grumpy all the time. Some of you this morning might need to enter into a spirit of confession. We have a time in our worship gathering where we put up on the screen for you a prayer of confession. Not that the words are magical or like a holy incantation that absolves you. But sometimes we just need a little guide in the right direction. And it includes words like this. I have not loved you as I should. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Have you come to the place? Do you need to come to the place where I have been living for myself? Father, I'm wrong. Help me love others. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our Hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. And that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. God bless.